This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, which is each and every week two things, principally. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. We touch on politics, policy, and pop culture. A lot of politics, a lot of policy, teeny bit of pop culture, but we try to have fun along the way, taking our guests seriously, but ourselves never, ever, ever too seriously. I do this every week. It's my preamble because I mean it. I'm capable of working from home, as you can see. The great advantage of the work I do is that I can work from home. It's a huge advantage, borderline blessing. For those of you who don't have that advantage in your life, who are frontline medical workers, who are delivery workers, who are working in meat processing or slaughterhouses as the more accurate term, who are teachers, who are first responders, thank you. You are living a more perilous life than I am because you have to. And I want you to know I appreciate the work you do. Everyone who listens to this show and watches this show appreciates the work you do. And as important as all that, I'm trying to stay out of your way. And when I do get in your way, I'm wearing a mask to keep myself safe, but most importantly, to keep you safe. So for all those out there who are working and doing the things that keep this country going, I thank you. Our guest is Julian Castro. He was the Housing and Urban Development Secretary in the Obama administration. You may remember him from the debate stage. He was in several of the debates. He ran for president on the Democratic ticket, and he has endorsed uh, current Democratic nominee. There won't be another one, Joe Biden. But before that, he endorsed Elizabeth Warren. We'll talk about that in a second. Secretary Castro, great to see you. Good to be with you, Major. You are in San Antonio, correct, sir? I am. I'm here in San Antonio with my family uh, and uh, managing the uh, back and forth of virtual learning. I was you know, just uh, you know, running around, log, helping to log my kindergartner onto a class every 30 minutes. I may have to stop this interview for like 30 seconds to do that. But yes. yeah, you know, we're, we're living uh, the new reality that a lot of families are going through right now. And behalf of the audience, I say we will make all allowances necessary for you to get up and make sure that that next uh, lesson plan, whatever it is in its virtual space, is carried out to its fullest. Um, it would be... If this were on television, like real television, like a super high-produced program, what I'm about to do would be a complete killer. 
because I'm going to talk about the Hatch Act. And like, if it was on television, everyone's eyes would glaze over and they'd be like, oh, God, it's so boring. What are you talking about? But I want to talk to you about it because that became a thing for you in 2016. You got a little bit of a wrist slap because you did something inadvertently and then you said, I'm going to train my staff better on the Hatch Act. The only reason I ring this up is because all week we have this parade of, by any rational standard, violations of, or at least redefinitions of, the Hatch Act at this Republican National Convention. I just want to throw that out to you and let you run with it. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing to see how intentionally and how repeatedly this administration has violated the Hatch Act. And for those folks who don't, who aren't familiar with the Hatch Act, basically the Hatch Act is a federal law that says uh, that uh, you sh- that government officials should not use uh, government or taxpayer property to politic. And for people in the administration, cabinet members or White House aides or, or whomever in that capacity, you're not supposed to mix your personal capacity with your official capacity. In 2016, I was giving an interview in the studio of HUD, you know, where I was a cabinet secretary. And during the interview with Katie Couric, uh, you know, she asked me directly about the 2016 election. And I said, oh, you know, I'm not speaking in my official capacity. I'm speaking in my personal capacity. But, uh, you know, then I said that I hoped that Hillary Clinton would be successful and so forth. I thought that by saying that that was in my personal capacity, not my official capacity, that I I had fulfilled the requirements of the Hatch Act. But it was brought to my attention a few weeks later that that was actually a violation of the Hatch Act. So I said, oh, wow. Uh, Okay. Um, As soon as that was brought to my attention, I said, okay, well, let's make sure we fix this. I, uh, you know, acknowledge the error. And we made sure that myself and everybody else got a stronger briefing on what the Hatch Act requires so that you, you know, stay on the right side of that line. You know, it was an inadvertent mistake. I didn't mean to make it, but as soon as I did make it, we made sure that didn't happen again. You compare that to this administration, starting with Kellyanne Conway, who very early on violated the Hatch Act and was told that and then continued over and over and over again. That's the same same case for a number of other officials in the Trump administration. All of that is leading up, led up to this week, using the White House grounds in an unprecedented way to campaign during the RNC, blatantly, uh, flagrantly, I think, crossing the line of using official uh, uh, titles, government property, the taxpayers' uh, property to campaign in furtherance of the election of Donald Trump, not to mention the fact that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo stepped out of the usual custom of a secretary of state who usually stays out of domestic politics so they can be more effective in their job. You know, so the difference I see is, look, if you're a leader, it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, um, you know, first of all, people are going to make mistakes, right? But if you make a mistake, then, you know, you need to be big enough to own up to it and do everything you can so that it doesn't happen again. I think that's leadership. On the other hand, what you have is, you know, this administration that is so hell-bent on doing whatever they want, breaking whatever rules they want, not in the people's interest, but in their own political interest. And that shows an absence of leadership. And I, one of the reasons I think people are looking forward to Joe Biden being the next president is because they know that he's an honorable man and that he will 
uh, elevate again the uh, ethical standing of, of the administration, and he will do everything that he can to make sure that those two things are separate, that the people's business is done and, and politics is over here, um, and the two are not mixed. For our podcast audience, our audience on more than 70 great radio stations around the country and Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124, what's the danger here? Because you know maybe some people who live in San Antonio, certainly some people in my audience would say, oh, what the heck? It's some little fussy thing you guys in Washington and gals in Washington get obsessed about. What's the danger? I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, the danger is, number one, that these people can be using your taxpayer dollars for their own political benefit. Instead of having to use campaign funds, uh, they're basically using your taxpayer funds, whether it's the grounds of the White House. If they had it somewhere else, it would cost money to do that. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, there are trips involved, right? People mix official business with political business if they're spending money, basically taking an airplane trip and staying at a hotel, using a venue that would cost money uh, out of campaign coffers, but instead charging the taxpayer for that. So they're taxpayer dollars that are being abused. Um, secondly, the longer term danger to our democracy is that we need to see that distinction. There is a distinction between the role that somebody plays in their official capacity, representing all of the people all of the time, versus their capacity as just a politician that is going to say and do what they want to say and do in order to get elected. And of course, there are times when those lines blur, but I do think that we need to make every effort to keep those separate. And um, the, the Trump administration has broken those rules so repeatedly and so flagrantly that when this administration is done, and I hope that's soon after the election, uh, you know, I think that, that Congress should go back and look at ways that it can put more teeth into something like the Hatch Act. Last 30 seconds in this segment, there was a naturalization ceremony in the White House in the middle of this convention. That's historically a civic celebration with no partisan component whatsoever. How does that strike you? It struck me as disingenuous uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, it was reported that the immigrants who went through this naturalization ceremony did not realize that their ceremony, which people look forward to, the family members look forward to, the people becoming citizens, they cherish this citizenship. They look forward to, to having this moment. They didn't know that they were going to be political props, that this was going to happen during the actual RNC and be part of a broadcast. Uh, and so they were tricked. They were basically fooled into becoming political props for Donald Trump. They didn't know that Trump was actually going to be a part of the ceremony himself. It's also ironic because this president has been the most anti-immigrant president, and not just against undocumented immigrants. Remember, Major, as you know, the administration has tried to cut down, curtail the number of refugees we take in, the number of asylees we take in, and the number of actual people who can come here on visas and apply for citizenship. So all around, it's, it's mendacity, it's hypocrisy, uh, you know, it's hoodwinking the American people and the people who are participating in that ceremony. It's Donald Trump, you know, it's a microcosm of what Trump is. The voice of Julian Castro, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to Enjoying, as, every, as you do every week, The Takeout. Back for segment two in a second. 
It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, you know who you are, with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Julian Castro is our special guest. He was Housing and Urban Development Secretary in the Obama administration, ran for the Democratic nomination in 2020 and has endorsed, endorsed Joe Biden. You endorsed Elizabeth Warren before that. Talk to me about this transition. Well, it wasn't a hard transition, you know, for my campaign to supporting Senator Warren. Uh, during the course of the campaign, she and I had an opportunity to talk uh, quite a bit. And, you know, she and I share, I think, a common vision for the future of the country. Was very impressed with her campaign, as I've been impressed with Vice President Biden's campaign. And you know, he and I share the same values and a good vision for the country's future. So it wasn't a hard, uh, you know, decision about supporting him. Um, you know, we we wanted to make sure the timing of that worked out, and I think that it did. I'm doing everything that I can between now and November third to help elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, have done a number of different state events, visited with uh, different delegations, caucuses during the DNC, uh, was part of a Texas fundraiser about a month ago for Vice President Biden that he participated in. So yeah, I mean, it's an all hands on deck election. And we know that we can't, as Democrats, we can't take anything for granted. People did not expect Trump to win in 2016, but he won. People don't expect him to win in 2020, but you know, you, you can't take anything for granted. Do you fear he might win? Well, I'm, I remember 2016. And so, uh, you know, I believe that Joe Biden is going to win. I think that 2020 is different for Donald Trump because he's not just a theoretical president. He's a president with a failure of a record. You know, so many job losses because he didn't protect us the way that he could have uh, on this pandemic. People have seen how divisive he's been, how chaotic he has been how many times he's broken the law, uh, been hypocritical. So he's got a record, and that means something. Remember, he barely won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. He won those things collectively by 77,000 votes. He won Florida by a point, a point and a half. So I think that Joe Biden is going to win. But then again, you know, we didn't expect Trump to win last time, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount him this time either. How nervous are you about what happens if he loses but won't leave? It concerns me uh, because I think he's so self-absorbed, frankly so selfish, that at every juncture he has shown that he will put himself above the American people. And that means that you may have somebody like him that acts irrationally and thinks he can sit around there. Uh, And it also concerns me that the Supreme Court is a conservative Supreme Court. We've been burned once uh, in 2000 when the Supreme Court essentially locked up the presidency for George W. Bush. 
Is it possible that something could end up in the courts uh, and affect the election? I mean, it's possible. I don't think that's going to happen. And I do think ultimately that we're going to have the kind of smooth transition of power that America is known for. And one of the things we should be proud of as a country, instead of some of these countries you see out there around the world where you do have these shenanigans and, you know, people trying to hold on to power. So I think we're going to have a smooth transition. But it would, would it shock me if Trump tries to do something different? No. And when you talk to Democratic activists, uh, are they aware of and how deeply do they Im- internalize the, the need from their vantage point, not just to win, but to win decisively, that this is about a turnout model that is not just about, from their vantage point, not mine, victory, but something larger than that? People seem to be getting that idea more and more. That's building as we get closer to the election, that, look, um, if it's close, you're going to have questions that he's already raised about mail-in balloting. Those things are going to take several weeks to fully be counted. The last thing we want is this saga, this question hanging in the air about, well, what really happened in the election to give any fuel to the fire that he's already trying to create. So the best way to avoid that is a decisive victory. The good news is that if, if as Democrats and as people that want new leadership, whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, because Joe Biden's had a lot of Republicans recently that have come out in support of him, everybody needs to do their job between now and November 3rd. Talk to their friends, their family, their coworkers, make sure they go vote. And as former President Obama and Secretary of State Clinton reminded us last week, have a plan to vote. The administration is trying to undermine the ability of people to do mail-in balloting. Okay, well then realize for whatever reason you may have to go in person and go early, but plan on that. How are you going to make sure you stay safe and you're comfortable and make sure your family members also have that plan? That's the best thing that people can do. Have a plan to vote yourself. Make sure that others have a plan that you know. Crass political question because politicians have to be crass sometimes. Does it strike you that by making the assertions, in almost every instance, if not completely groundless, mostly groundless about mail-in balloting, he is motivating your base and scaring his to his own political detriment? Yeah, I think it's true what people say about this president, that a lot of times, uh, you know, he's, he's erratic and maybe he doesn't always think things through, right? That's probably an understatement. I do think that there's some... There's, there's a cleverness behind what he's doing because what he's doing is that he's setting up doubt, creating doubt around an election that he's probably going to lose. And that doubt may give him in his mind some latitude to try and challenge it in court and that that's the first step to try and stay in power. On the other hand, though, these polls show, as you suggest, that the people that are really hearing him and that all of a sudden say they're not going to do their usual voting, which is usually, especially older Americans, mail-in balloting, are his people. So let's just take a state with all of the, you know, with, with one of the most important states, Florida. 29 electoral votes, a huge senior community. Many of those, probably most of those seniors are Republican. They vote Republican. Probably they're going to vote as a majority for Donald Trump. Now... They're, they are expressing concerns about whether they should mail-in ballot. Okay, well, if you have a senior population, you're probably going to have some issues with people being able to get to mail-in, get to early voting sites in the same way 
that's a lot less convenient for somebody that's 75, 80, 85 than just filling out your mail-in ballot and sending that off. Could that cause people to, to, to end up not voting? Okay. Yeah, you could see a fall off. So Vice President Pence gave his speech last night. We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon. I want to play you, uh, Jake, this is soundbite number two, because it's an issue that is uh, close to your heart. I don't want to get your reaction on the other side of it. Jake, play it. Joe Biden is for open borders, sanctuary cities, free lawyers and health care for illegal immigrants. And President Trump, he secured our border and built nearly 300 miles of that border wall. Sanctuary cities, lawyers for illegal aliens, free health care. That's yeah, what, a message that was powerful for Donald Trump as a candidate in 2016. What you see there is the same mix of lies and distortions and uh, scapegoating of immigrants that has defined the political career of Donald Trump. First of all, uh, recently it was reported accurately that only five miles of new border wall has actually been built. Uh, by the Trump administration. So 300 miles, they're just making that up. Uh, they're counting- or, or they're talking about refurbished or rebuilt portions of wall. Yeah, I mean, it was already there. There was a there was a structure that was already there and maybe they've renovated it, improved it, but it was already there. Only five miles of new wall has actually been built when he promised a lot more to his base. And a different uh, financing mechanism as well. That's right. Mexico did not pay for it. Um, that was a lie. Uh, in addition to that, what Joe Biden has talked about is a, an immigration system that actually makes sense and is reasonable and does not separate families, does not treat people with cruelty, and comes up with a reasonable way to address the 11 million people who are here. And go back to treating fairly people who are seeking asylum in the country uh, or who are undocumented in the country. They're still going to go through the legal system. There's still, you know, a process in place uh, to determine what happens to these individuals, but they're not going to be routinely separated from their children just as a matter of cruelty. That's the voice of Julian Castro, our special guest, back for segment three of The Takeout in just one second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to the dining room studio here. Been here for many, many months. You know, one day these days, I'm not sure when, we'll get back to the restaurant and the ordinary vibe of this program. Joaquin Castro, Julian Castro's brother, did that with us about a year and a half ago. Uh, I guarantee you, we'll get back to restaurants, but we don't want to bother them now. We don't want to clutter them now. We don't want to freak them out now. We will get back there eventually, but until then... I'm just here with my coffee in the uh, dining room studio that I've built uh, for myself. Uh, Julian Castro is our special guest. Um, I want to get out other things that the vice president said in his acceptance speech, but this came up during the uh, Democratic debates. Republicans pounced on it. And I want to get your orientation to it. Long term for this country. They said it is wrong to suggest, as you did, that crossing the border illegally should not be a crime and that it is wrong to provide any kind of health benefits for people who enter this country illegally, and to do so is an un-American inducement to criminality. I want you to address those two. Uh, well, 
let's take the first one. Um, charging somebody who comes over, comes across the border with a crime, um, with a criminal penalty, is relatively new in our country's history. For the longest time, decades and decades, that was actually not up until a couple of decades ago. And uh, when I brought up uh, Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act in the debate, I said that what happened was the Trump administration weaponized that law, that criminal penalty, to then separate parents from their children. And that we could go back to the way we used to do it in America and still treat this as a civil violation and have a court process and still determine, uh, you know, whether somebody's going to be able to stay here or not but take away that criminal penalty, has, which has been abused. So there would still be accountability, but there would not be uh, this opening for abuse. With regard to healthcare, look, the question for people is, do we want to face the facts? People already foot the bill for healthcare for just about everybody in this country. It's called the emergency room. You have 11 million people who are undocumented in this country. They work hard. They pay taxes. People can look that up. Oftentimes, they pay more in taxes than they get back in benefits because they don't want to pop their head up. They're afraid of getting deported. But because they don't have health insurance, uh, they may have some, some illness, some malady. They wait and wait and wait until at the last minute, you know, then something happens and they have to go to the emergency room. And then who picks up the bill for that? The American taxpayer. So you're already footing the bill for the health care of a lot of people. If this is how you think about it, what makes more sense is right now to allow people to, who are working hard to buy into the exchanges if they're undocumented and to get their own health insurance. Uh, and to be able to engage in preventive health care so that they, you know, they don't deal with the emergency room visits and taxpayers don't have to foot the bill, a higher bill than they otherwise would. I want to have you respond to something else the vice president said in his acceptance speech. Um, it's dealing with the assertion by Republicans, repetitive assertion this week, that America is overwhelmed with urban lawlessness. That's number three, Jake, play it. Now, Joe Biden says that America is systemically racist and that law enforcement in America has, and I quote, an implicit bias against minorities. Joe Biden would double down on the very policies that are leading to violence in America's cities. The hard truth is, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. I don't need to tell you, Secretary Castro, that one of the things that Donald Trump did as a candidate and does as a president is draw bright lines of distinction, sometimes on false premises, but nevertheless, they are bright lines and they are memorable because of that. To my mind, you can't get a brighter line in this area of conversation than you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. What's your response? Oh, I mean, this is just uh, 1968. Do you want to elect Richard Nixon, except worse? This guy thinks that uh, basically he's in 1968. He's trying to revamp 
a modern day quote unquote law and order campaign. In the meantime, it's been the most corrupt law-breaking administration maybe in our nation's history. This president is the most mendacious, most law-breaking president we've ever had. And he's the one talking to anybody about law and order. On the other hand, in Joe Biden, you have somebody of good character, somebody who is ethical, somebody who believes in uh, justice and accountability for everybody, no matter the color of their skin. Uh, and uh, it's also you know, really fallacious about our urban communities. Um, our urban communities, many of them are thriving. Uh, they need more investment, but they're not this lawless place that uh, Vice President Pence or President Trump uh, paint them to be. There is unrest right now, but that unrest, I think, is due to longstanding inequality and the effect of uh, the excessive use of force by police on people like George Floyd and on Jacob Blake. So there are issues that have to be grappled with. And you have one in Joe Biden who wants us as a nation to come together to heal and to grapple with them and come out a stronger nation for it. And on the other hand, Donald Trump that simply wants to use these issues to divide Americans. What is the best tactical response to that rhetoric? Because it's not going to go away. It is only going to intensify in the closing days of this campaign. Does Biden properly ignore it? Or what does he do tactically to respond to it from your vantage point? Well, I, all I think that Vice President Biden has to do is to show the diversity of voices who are supporting his campaign. Uh, people from the left to the right, black, white, everything in between. There's a reason that people of all different backgrounds uh, and, and ideologies are supporting Joe Biden in this election, that a list now of well over 100 Republicans have come out in support of Joe Biden because he's the person that can bring us together. So if somebody out there is worried about this strife, this division, and, and you know what's happening out there on the streets, then don't you want a president who can actually address it effectively? Joe Biden can do that, and Donald Trump can. Well, uh, again, to uh, get down to crass level of politics, when you talk to the Trump campaign, they say, okay, I heard everything you said, Secretary Castro. Let me tell you something. A suburban mom who is a little bit nervous about this whole general topic doesn't care that 100 people who once worked for John McCain now support Joe Biden. They want to know when they go to the grocery store, they're safer or as safe as they can be. And if that's the issue and they're unsure about it, they're going to go with Trump. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, how did they feel uh, during President Obama's presidency? I think people actually felt um, better about the country. They felt better about their community. We had the longest streak of positive job growth in our nation's history. You take where uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden got the economy back then, losing 700,000 jobs a month, and then went on more than 70 straight months of positive job growth, the longest streak in our nation's history. They were able to bring America back. Flip that over, you get a president in Trump who inherited a very strong economy from President Obama and Vice President Biden. And now, because he didn't take the coronavirus seriously, unlike leaders around the world, 
our economy is totally tanked and tens of millions of people are still out of work. He has failed. And if people are feeling any kind of anxiety, I think it's over that. But the reason that we're doing so badly is because this administration was not prepared, was not up to dealing with the major challenges of our times, especially the coronavirus. That's the voice of Julian Castro. He was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Obama administration. He ran for president in 2020. Back for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. I wasn't properly complimentary enough earlier in the show about Secretary Castro's very lovely uh, studio and his home as well. So, Secretary Castro, forgive me for that. I was just referring to mine because I'm a self-indulgent media person, and that's all we know how to do is talk about ourselves. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to have you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, on all the various platforms and formats, one thing I want to do, a little commercial for myself, if you love this program, and even if you just like it... Uh, you might want to be aware of something else I'm doing called the debrief. It is a weekly, weekly, not not weekly with an A, but weekly with two E's, meaning once a week, podcast, deep dive into one particular topic. And we've done five episodes so far. Uh, I'm very proud of it. I think it's some of the best work I've ever done. So if you dig this show, I know you will dig the debrief. So you can find that on all podcast platforms. And we hope an excellent radio stations near you sometime very soon. Back to Julian Castro. So... Um, what do you think the state of this race is? Do you think Joe Biden is really 10 points ahead? Or do you think, as some Democrats I talk to fear, there is 4% of a secret Trump vote out there that Democrats better be afraid of? Oh, look, we know that these national polls are consistently showing Vice President Biden 9, 10, 11, 12 points ahead. But we also know that that's, and we found this out painfully as Democrats in 2016, that's not how the presidential election works. It's about electoral votes. And when you look at these swing states, it's a little bit closer than that. In a couple of the swing states, Vice President Biden still maintains that kind of lead, but it's a little closer in those swing states, four points, six points. So that means that we have to be as focused as we possibly can be on getting the vote out there. And yes, there's reason for concern. There's reason not to take any of this for granted. If you want to say one thing about uh, Trump voters, they are committed to their guy. They are going to go vote. 
and, and oftentimes, has ha- mm-hmm. in that regard, has the vice president been energetic enough? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's run a smart uh, general election campaign uh, since he sewed up the nomination. You know, there were some questions earlier in the year about should he be getting out more or, you know, stay where he's at in Delaware. I think they, 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 the proof is in the pudding and they've handled the campaign well. After Labor Day, that begins the stretch, the last stretch of the campaign. Everybody knew, knows that it's a different ball game. People that don't usually pay attention to the, to the campaigns are going to be paying attention now. People that decide late are going to be deciding in those last couple of months, especially in the last few weeks. So it means that um, not only Joe Biden has to be hitting on all cylinders, which I think he has been and will be, but everybody else that wants to you know, dump Donald Trump and get new leadership needs to do our part. So yes, uh, uh, there's always a concern, especially because of what happened in 2016, but I feel good about our chances. Would you accept a cabinet position in a Biden administration? Uh, well, I think that's a, that's a decision for uh, Joe Biden. I've said that I'm willing to be uh, helpful in any way that I can be. I'm not in any way expecting that or thinking through that or about that right now. Right now, what I'm trying to do is help make sure that he becomes the next president and Kamala Harris becomes the next vice president. Would you rather run for statewide office? You know, for the first time in a long time, I'm not aiming for anything, whether it's a cabinet position or running for an office. When I got out of the Obama administration in early 2017, I pretty much knew that I was, you know, that I wanted to run for president. Um, Right now, I'm more in a kind of like, we're going to see how it goes and where it goes. I I know no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm just in the private sector or where I jump back in, I'm going to use my voice uh, and my passion for politics and policy to try and make a difference in people's lives. But I'm not aiming for anything particular. So to answer your question directly, it's possible in the future that I will run in Texas, but I may not or may run not next time, but, you know, a few years from now. Uh, Let me, uh, with your indulgence, play a bit of a role game with you. Uh, Let's pretend for just a second I'm Steve Reschetti. For those who don't know, uh, he's a longtime advisor to Vice President Biden. He might be his chief of staff if he wins the presidency, but he's a big player and he might make a phone call to you that goes something like this. Secretary Castro, uh, we spent a little money in Texas. You probably noticed that. Push comes to shove. Where should we spend our money? Is there any point in us spending any more money in Texas with the hopes of winning it? Yes or no? Yes. And this is what's different in 2020, uh, because sometimes people hear this every four years that Texas could run right. over. Here's what's different in 2020. For the last couple of cycles, Texas has been clearly moving toward Democrats. Hillary lost it by nine points, which was the best showing for any Democrats since 96. In 2018, Democrats took back 12 state House seats, two state Senate seats, two congressional seats, and Beto O'Rourke got within two and a half points of Ted Cruz in a midterm year that's usually harder uh, because less of our vote usually comes out in the midterms versus the general election. Headed into 2020, Poll after poll shows that this race is basically tied within the margin of error. Biden is usually up by one or two points. And those numbers are in the the mid to high 40s, you know, like 47, 47, 46, 45. They're not 39, 39, where there's a lot left and you think those people are going to break 
go home to the Republicans. You can feel that what's happening in Texas is that the suburbs have abandoned the Republican Party in the era of Donald Trump. They don't think that, that the Republican Party represent their values or who they are as people, as families anymore. That's created a lot of opportunity, along with the continued demographic changes in the state. Those two forces are meeting up to create a powerful opportunity for 38 electoral votes. I would say to Steve or anybody else, it's 22 media markets, so it's expensive, no question. Mm -hmm. But if you take Texas, it's game over for Republicans, not just in 2020, but for decades. So would you say, hey, spend less in Pennsylvania and more in Texas? Uh, no, I would still say that, <laughs> you know, we learned last time that you got to cover your bases where they are now. But we also know that in every election, there is spending that happens in other states that are not quite as, as uh, defined as, uh, you know, swing states. And the Texas is right at the top of that list. And if you spent there, you would force the Trump campaign to spend there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, there's already a, a race as the poll show in Texas. I mean, so Trump is having to to come down here, he's having to spend money. Every dollar that Trump spends in Texas is a dollar that he can't spend in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida. So, you know, you're, not only are you having a positive impact if you're the Biden campaign to potentially winning the state by investing here, you're also forcing him to take dollars away from those other swing states that he that he uh, absolutely needs to win in order to be become or to get reelected. That is the voice of Julian Castro, our very special guest. For our radio audience, our time is done for this week. For those of you on our great and early adopting podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. That includes you on CBSN, folks. So stay tuned for segment five. Those of you, the rest of you, thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, continuing our conversation with Julian Castro. He was Housing and Urban Development Secretary in the Obama administration. He ran for president on the Democratic side. How did that go for you? Um, was that worse than you thought, about what you expected, or better than you expected? Uh, I mean, it, it was, I've seen the result was not what I right. wanted or expected. You don't run right? to lose, right? Yeah. You don't run to drop out That's as right. early as you did. I understand that. Yeah, but I guess the best way is to say that I'm very proud of the campaign that I ran. And I think that as we've gotten into 2020, so many of the, of the issues and the themes that we put out there and the vision for America that I put out there um, is resonant even more, I think, in 2020 than it was in 2019. I mean, a good example of that is what's happening right now with this issue of police violence and the black community. In my announcement speech, I said uh, that we needed to reimagine our criminal justice system and that we needed to address the issue of police violence. And I said, black lives still matter because we were in a time period where that seemed to have faded from people's memory, even though I knew that this is an issue that black Americans have to deal with day in and day out. And, and we sensed the urgency of that, even though the media was not covering it, we're not covering it. 
most politicians were not talking about it the way they had in the 2016 election. Uh, another was, uh, you know, the issue of making sure that everybody counts and that the most vulnerable in our country are tended to as well, not only the middle class, but also people who oftentimes are living in poverty, who are on the edge. We've seen how much the most vulnerable people have been hit during this pandemic. And, you know, I, I, so I think that, that in many ways uh, we were ahead of the curve and, and I'm proud of the campaign that I ran. What are your thoughts about what happened in Kenosha, not only with Jacob Blake, but now we have a 17-year-old who came from another state, a white young man who brought a firearm to defend a gas station, motivated by what he thought was his role in some kind of militia justice, and he killed two people. When the vice president talked about this at his acceptance speech, he mentioned a law enforcement officer from Oakland. He didn't mention that the suspect charged in that case has at least some tangential relationship to a militia-like mentality. What are your thoughts about where America is in terms of people feeling for whatever level of justification that they bring to themselves the right to go to the streets with their own guns to administer, if not justice, some form of vigilante protection? Look, there's a double standard in this country when it comes to law enforcement and how they treat uh, black Americans versus white Americans. And that should be clear to most, you know, level-headed, rational folks by now, even people that politically disagree with Democrats or with people who focus on this issue. That's the way it is. And I guess, you know, I, I, I mean, just to your point, to your point, after the El Paso massacre on social media instantly, I saw people saying, wait a minute, the shooter was arrested without incident? Yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Because arrested without incident doesn't happen in these cases where African-American men end up wounded or killed over something that didn't start with a mass shooting would be their point of view. Yeah, I mean, it really is just, uh, it's sad and it's also infuriating. Uh, and one of the reasons that I brought this up consistently on the debate stage and in the campaign, because I talked about this issue in almost every uh, forum, town hall, house event that we did in New Hampshire and Iowa during the campaign, is that we see consistently in law enforcement that when you're dealing, especially with a, when they're dealing with a black man, there's an assumption already made about that they're dangerous, that any little movement they make represents an attempt to get an, a weapon or represents a threat to the officer. That in and of itself is unacceptable and disappointing. And it has, you know, tragic consequences for, for African-Americans day in and day out. We just saw that with Jacob Blake. But the other part of that that is sad and, you know, and we really need to reflect on and do something about is that Americans accept that. They accept that stereotype. They buy into it or they let it go. And it's not a true one. And it indicts a whole race of people for no reason. And, you know, uh, 
the, the gunman in El Paso or Dylan Roof who went in and, and shot up nine people, killed them in the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. They're apprehended without incident. Look, I believe that everybody should be apprehended without incident. You know, nobody is suggesting that those people should have been harmed. What we're saying is, okay, look, apprehend them without incident. And also, if, if there's reason to, then apprehend uh, other people of darker skin color without incident as well and let them go through the criminal justice system. But too often times, that's not what happens if you're a black man. And in some cases, if you're also, if you're a Latino or uh, Native American and so forth. If you're Rayshard Brooks and you're saying, I'm willing to leave my car in a parking lot at a Wendy's in Atlanta and walk to my sister's house, why does that escalate? Why does that become a shooting scenario in which he dies? Because we, we have too many officers that are too quick to make assumptions. And I believe that it's actually a mix of fear, lack of understanding and fear, especially of, of black men. And also that it's a manifestation of less respect, of a dehumanization that, that has cooked itself up in somebody's mind thinking of people as lesser than, so you can treat them that way. Or also there's a, there's a resentment or a backlash in that officer's mind that somebody of that stature, as they see it, would treat them or talk back to them that way. And so they're quicker to lash out with violence against them. So we have uh, three threshold questions. Your brother answered all three. Uh, he may have uh, given you uh, pointers on these. I hope he sure didn't. Or I sure hope he didn't, he did to get not. my grammar correct. Okay, good. So in uh, whatever order you, pres- you prefer, um, most influential book in your life, uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Uh, I would say one of the most influential things was this poem. It's a long poem. It's actually a little book called I Am Joaquin. You know, my my brother was in part named after that. It was my mother was a Chicano activist. And this was a poem at the height of the Chicano movement uh, about the struggle of Mexican-Americans in the country. But it ends on a hopefulness about the future. Um, I think favorite movie is hard. I always said one of my favorite movies when I was growing up was The Breakfast Club. People will remember that from the mid 80s. Fantastic uh, movie. Good, Fantastic with, John Hughes movie. The Brat a great, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then what was the third? Music? Music. Uh, so I grew up during the time of, you know, Madonna and Michael Jackson and all of that right. in the 80s. So it's still 80s music. Yeah. I'm, right. I'm, I'm stuck in time. One of the great artists of all time and one of the great uh, marketing innovators of all time, Madonna, uh, without question. Uh, she, she earned everything she got. And one great thing about one little piece of trivia, because I looked it up about Breakfast Club, is I think it's an amazing movie. At the end of the movie or near the end of the movie, when they're all sitting down together, all of them in detention, when John Hughes was shooting that, the director, he sat down with them. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. So they're all sitting, 
Of course, you don't see John Hughes. He's the director. He's behind the camera. But that's how that created that vibe that was so real and authentic and raw in that scene. It's one of the best scenes of movies of that era and one of the best scenes in any John Hughes movie. A little bit of trivia. I know a little bit more movie trivia than I there probably healthily ought to. <laughs> Thank you for that. Secretary Castro, it's been, a great, it's been a great experience. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. And uh, I'm glad one of our segment breaks landed ever so perfectly so you could attend to the needs of your children and their virtual learning. Good Absolutely. luck with that. Thank you all for that. Hey, it's good to be with you, Major. Best wishes. And we'll see you down the road. Thanks so much. Be well. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.